night. In clearings amid still woods and fields in lonely farm country. Sometimes they come in silence, sometimes with quiet thunder. Often they leave marks in the earth, signals of their passing. They've been seen but fleetingly, and their extraordinary presence creates a frightening mystery. In fields from West Virginia through Wisconsin to Oregon are the beginnings of answers. information based in part on theory and conjecture. The producer's purpose is to suggest some possible explanations, but not necessarily the only ones, to the mysteries we will examine. If you use regular aspirin, you know what? I think my pain reliever works better than your pain reliever. And I think if you try my pain reliever, you may feel it works better too. What is my pain reliever? Excedrin, the extra strength pain reliever. And because the people who make Excedrin believe it might work better than regular aspirin for you, they want you to try it, free. Just send your name to this address and you'll get your own free sample of Excedrin. It's a chance to try Excedrin free. Do it today and see if you don't think my pain reliever works better than yours. I like doing things that surprise people. Once I wore a long white dress to a picnic and once I wore pigtails to a very formal dance. I don't want to be a carbon copy of anybody. I even want my hair to look special, silky with lots of highlights. That's why I like Nice and Easy. It's got built-in conditioners and the color looks so natural. It lets me be me. I guess that's why Nice and Easy is the world's best-selling hair color. On June 24th, 1947, an Idaho businessman named Kenneth Arnold was flying his private plane near Washington's Mount Rainier. He saw nine disc-like objects moving rapidly along the horizon. Arnold said they moved erratically, like saucers skipped across a pond. Flying saucer thus became part of our language. After the Mount Rainier sighting, unidentified flying objects were reported all over the country, an astonishing number of them and the sightings have continued to this day. A chill morning in Mellon, Wisconsin. Quiet fields and quiet people. Yet something remarkable happened on the Mellon Town Road. Something that would have seemed incredible if it hadn't happened to people as down to earth as the town of Mellon itself. <laughs> Philip Baker works in a mill on the same job for more than 20 years. He's grown up here and passed on to his children a love for the land, a love for planting and harvesting his own crops, for cutting wood to warm the house in the long Wisconsin winters. He was an officer in his union once, but stepped down because it meant too much time away from his wife, Shirley, and their kids, Monty, Jeff, Jane, and John. The most important things to the Baker family are hard work and being together. They were together the most incredible night of their lives. It was March 13, 1975. I was carrying two cats. I was walking to the garage. And I got by this corner, right by the house here. And I looked, and there was this weird object, funny noises, and it was really bright. And I didn't know what I should do. So I was going back and forth, 
and finally I threw the cat in the garage. And then I ran to the house around the corner and I couldn't get the door open. When I first saw it, I was standing approximately right here. But I couldn't get too good of a view of it because the brush and the trees were in the way. So then I, um, I went back into the house and I got my coat on. My uh, two youngest boys and Jane were following me. We went over here to get a better look at the object that was sitting on the road. And my curiosity still wanted me to get a better view of it. So we walked down. Of course, the ground was covered with snow. And my car was sitting here in the driveway. And, and of course, there were snow banks on the side of the roads. And there's where I got my estimate of the size of the object, approximately 12 feet in diameter, but also with the markings in the snow. Uh, and I would judge the, the object at the center of it was approximately six feet high. It was uh, like a turtle. Not believe that God exists. What do you say? Or do? Or what kind of response does that evoke in a person who is a believer and a Christian member of the church? What I'm really trying to find out is whether the outline I'm going to give you in a minute corresponds with what you're thinking. In other words, the right answers are on here. <laughs> <laughs> and if I hear something that's not on here, then I'll add it the next time around. These lessons get longer and longer. <laughs> yes. you didn't hear that, it's not so much a matter of what you say, but how you live that will be effective with a person who doesn't believe in God. You speak with your actions louder than with words. Yes? everyone here? I want to repeat it if you didn't hear it plainly. In other words, somebody had to put things in order and you mentioned the planets. It's a very interesting coincidence. In class last week in a college class, not a Christian school, one of the students said, how come the earth doesn't fall into the sun? What a beautiful opening. They <laughs> said, because God gave it a sideways push so it wouldn't fall in there. Yes, very, very true, that when we see how things are made and how everything is in order and doesn't collapse, okay, very happy to say that so far everything that's been mentioned is on today's sheet. There yes. was one occasion that I had uh, with a Jewish man, uh, and it might seem very simplistic, but when I examine the question, the only answer that I could give him was it was more difficult for me to conceive of everything that there is not having a creator than having a creator. In other words, how it all started without a creator, I, I couldn't <coughs> understand how that could be. So, the argument that something needs a creator. Well, the, the way the world is set up, uh, whoever just mentioned that, how could it have all been <coughs> without some creator, some mind behind it that could have done all this? Okay. There was another hand. Yes.
Well, how do you deal with crisis? In other words, how it comes. Yes, yes, I'm not silent because I disagree. I'm uh, very much in agreement. So we've had four different arguments now. I shouldn't say that argument has a bad connotation, I guess. But four ways of talking to people who do not believe in God to make them think about it. Yes. Why is there evil if there is a God? So you're giving us some answers that people will give us back about the existence of God. That's, uh, that's a good thought. It's not just have a, a series of things that we can say, but also answers to objections that we might expect. Okay. Um, very good result of giving homework. <coughs> so let's take a look at the outline I've prepared and let's add the things that we've heard this morning to the outline. <coughs> and I'd like to use the same approach to this question that we used last week. And that is that the question of the existence of God, and indeed many other questions we can raise, can be approached in two ways. We can approach it through human reason, and we can approach it through Christian faith as Christians. So the first part of the discussion will center around what we can say to a person from human reason that points to the existence of a God. How many saw the program The Long Search last night on Buddhism? I wasn't sure. I thought it was on Catholicism last night, but this week and tonight again at 7 o'clock, Channel 13, and Wednesday night, Channel 21, channel 21 <coughs> at about 9 o'clock the second in a series of 13 special one-hour programs on the world's religions called The Long Search. And the one this week is on Buddhism. And I didn't know this before, but the Buddhists do not believe in the existence of God. And it is a very, very different kind of way of life and, and religion from what we're accustomed to. They spend some time showing how a young boy of seven or eight years is introduced into the Buddhist priesthood, having his head shaved and being uh, instructed in the ways of the teaching of Buddha and so on. It's very thought-provoking. And there are certain points of contact we found when we were listening to it with our own beliefs. There are certain things the Buddhists have been taught that we would certainly say are universally true as far as God is concerned, and yet they don't believe there is a God. They just believe in being reincarnated. In fact, the one priest told the, the man who's running the series, uh, when he asked the priest, do you think that I did something wrong because I'm a Christian? They believe in reincarnation, being born over and over. Because I'm a Christian now, am I being punished for what I did in my last life? And the priest said yes, or it was a woman. The, because he was English. Because he was English. Well, he mentioned being English and Christian, though. He was born in the wrong country because he was bad, and if he does better this time than the next time around, he might be born somewhere else and become a Buddhist. Makes you think. Now, as we watch these programs and uh, as we hear other people talking about religion, it seems to indicate that most people believe in God today. And yet there are many 
especially because we're in a scientific age who think that God is not as important as he used to be, that we can solve our problems better in some other way. Now, human reason, and here's a, a series of arguments that have come out of discussions of this kind in the past, seem to indicate, and as we heard already this morning, that a created universe is more reasonable than an eternal one. There really are only two choices. Either the universe has been there forever, or God has been there forever and he made it. There are those two viewpoints. I know scientists who believe that the universe is eternal. Dr. Fred Hoyle, for example, a great astronomer from England, was at Stony Brook not long ago, and I called him to see if I could ask him about his religion, and he was very gracious about it, but it soon became evident as we were talking that he believes the universe is eternal. I said, well, does that rule out God for you? And he said, no, but my God is so complicated and difficult to understand that most people wouldn't know what I'm talking about. So the universe to some people is eternal and they find that just as easy to believe as that God is eternal because they'll say, well, who made God? Well, you have to make a choice, one or the other. To me, it is more reasonable that God is eternal and that the universe was in created intelligently. Because how can an eternal universe, my own thinking, have much intelligent organization in it? There's a story that a computer was once given the assignment of deciding among the various theories of how the universe came into existence. And computer analysts fed all this information into it on an eternal universe and on the uh, Big Bang theory and on the steady state theory and all the different ideas scientists have of how the stars and the heavens got there. And they waited and the lights flashed and rumbled and everything else. And finally, the computer started to talk and it said, in the beginning, God <laughs> created the heavens and earth. We heard before also that the orderliness and beauty of nature argue for a creator. This was, by the way, Einstein's reason for believing in God. Einstein was not an unbeliever. Einstein wrote a series of letters to a good friend of his in Germany by the name of Max Born. They're called the Born-Einstein Letters. We had the privilege before the death of Born in Germany, Margaret and I, to visit with him and his wife. And it soon became obvious in that discussion that neither Born nor Einstein were atheists. And Einstein always, in his letters and in his work, spoke of the, the orderliness of the universe and he made one remark that was particularly significant by saying that the most incomprehensible thing about the universe is that it is comprehensible. <coughs> he spoke German, of course. We should really say it in German, but that's a long word, incomprehensible in German. <laughs> so. I'll say the other one in German because it's written in German over the Institute for Advanced Studies where Einstein worked at the time of his death. And it's a quotation from him in which he said to an, uh, as an answer to a question about the universe, raffiniert ist der Herr Gott, aber boshaft ist er nicht, which means God is very refined in his workings, but he is not malicious. He meant to say that the laws of the universe were made by a loving God. And the fact that there are laws of nature that can be understood and that are not capricious, tricky. It's not tricky. Scientists know that scientific laws are always simple. The simplest answer is always the best in science. 
the equations of Einstein are basically very simple. E equals mc squared. It's a very simple thing, yet very profound. And he said that's because God is not malicious. And he's saying God made the universe because it couldn't have gotten that way in its simplicity and orderliness by itself. I have a number of other of these. Uh, I'd just like to read one or two. One is from Dr. Werner von Braun, who just recently died and probably the best known space scientist in our country during the moonshots. He said, anything as well ordered and perfectly created as is our earth and universe must have a maker, a master designer. Anything so orderly, so perfect, so precisely balanced, so majestic as this creation can only be the product of a divine idea. There must be a maker. There can be no other way. In response to questions that I sent to Dr. Von Braun about his religion, I have a long essay here, if someone wants to see it later, which is a transcript of an address he delivered to the governor's breakfast in Denver some time ago called A Scientist's Belief in God. It's very, very heartwarming. I heard him give this, or a similar presentation, at Wheaton College in Illinois, which as you may know is Billy Graham's school, where he's on the board of directors and where they're now building a large Billy Graham Center. Dr. Von Braun was a very devout believer. Here's another one, the last man to go to the moon. Commander of the last ship, Apollo 17, was Eugene Cernan. And he said, when he got back, when you get out there a quarter of a million miles away from home, you look at Earth with a little different perspective. The Earth looks big and beautiful and blue and white. And you can see from the Antarctic to the North Pole and the continental shores. The Earth looks so perfect. There are no strings to hold it up, no fulcrum upon which it rests. You think of the infinity of space and the infinity of time. I didn't see God, but I am convinced of God by the order out in space. I know it didn't happen by accident. And I don't think it was a complete accident that all of the 12 men who walked on the moon were Christians. The first human being to circle the moon, as you may remember, in 1958, read Genesis 1 from his spaceship. They were all Christians, and they all, in talking to Eugene Cernan in Houston later, he told me that all, no exception, all the astronauts, he said, had a profound spiritual experience in space. The second man to get out of the ship and walk on the moon gave himself communion before he got out of the ship. Buzz Aldrin. He thought before he left, what could he do to commemorate this event in the proper way? And he took a little communion service with him and asked for radio silence so that no one in the universe would listen in on this. And when he was all alone and the other man had left already, he took it out and took communion. These people were all impressed by the orderliness and beauty of nature as they saw it in space. And the story is told that when some of the astronauts met with the Russian cosmonauts in Paris at the Paris Air Show, the cosmonauts were saying how they didn't see God out there. And one of the American astronauts told this cosmonaut, the reason you didn't see God out there is because you forgot to take him along. Now that's not something that makes great international relations, <laughs> but it's a good Christian witness. Now, I trust you saw some of these in the God of Science as well. I have been told, and in point number three, about how many people believe that there is a God, that before <coughs> World War II, a survey of scientists showed that about 35% believed in God. After the war, 70% believed in God. 
I'm not sure how accurate that figure is. I don't know how such a survey can really be made, but one reason for doing the book The God of Science is to find out whether scientists are more or less religious than other people. And even though 38 or so people is not a survey, I'm convinced that the percentage of people believing in God among science is no different from the percentage in other walks of life. Science does not make them irreligious. In fact, it may be true that the percentage of scientists believing in God is greater than among other people because they see the wonders of creation more clearly. I think this is particularly true in physics because the physicist is the one who gets closest to studying the ultimate nature of matter. And one striking thing that I learned in listening to the show last night was that Buddhists believe that things are made out of vibrations. And that is exactly what modern physics says. And it is therefore also to me not just a coincidence that some of today's physicists are using Buddhist teachings to explain the construction of the atom. One of the most recent theories of how the atom is put together and how the dozens and over a hundred different particles that have now been identified within the atom may be obeying a sort of eightfold rule. And Buddhists have the eightfold way of getting to nirvana. The priests hold up an umbrella over their shaved heads that has eight ribs in it. And as the priest explained it on the show last night, when we are born, we start on the periphery of this eightfold <coughs> umbrella. And as we work inward on these eight ribs, we get to perfection in the center, in nirvana. So there is a relationship between the explanation of matter today and spiritual and religious and philosophical thinking. There is no great rift there between reason and faith in that respect. They're coming close together. Now even though all these things are true and that a person is influenced by what he sees in the universe, it is still a fact that human reason cannot go all the way and conclusively prove that there is a God. And I think you saw that in the quotations in The God of Science. Does somebody have a particular quotation in mind or a page that we can refer to where somebody says that, where a scientist admits his limitations when it comes to explaining whether God exists? About page 52. That's where it starts. Starting right with the first quotation, where the scientist Wienand says, I don't think science can prove or disprove the existence of God. It's not a matter of science, it's a matter of faith. Outram, the next one, there is no possibility for science to define the necessity for God, but there is also no possibility to deny him. There was more agreement on this point in this book than on any other question I addressed to these people. Top scientists agree, and I say top because sometimes people who have not made it to the fame that these people have will disagree with this, but those who have arrived at the ultimate in their own field know their limitations. Before we go on beyond this first point, and as I mentioned last time, there should always be at least one demonstration or trick in the morning's proceedings. Here is a little toy I took away from my son <laughs> eight years ago. <laughs> Something like that. Um, wind it up first. Just standing still. Now when you turn the air on, 
The ball stays there. Why does it stay there? Well, it's possible to tell what happens, but remember, we never answer why. We explain it by saying that air is rushing past this ball on either side, and there happens to be a law in science or a principle that says when a fluid moves faster, the pressure is less. This is the basis of the Venturi meter and so on. It's called Bernoulli's principle. It makes baseballs curve and so on. If you twist the ball one way, it makes the air flow faster on one side, difference of pressure, and the ball goes one way. So the air is rushing past both sides of the ball, making the pressure less on both sides, and so the outside air pressure keeps the ball in, keeps it from falling. So far, so good. But now watch this next part I'm going to do, and that is to tilt the chimney so that the ball will be on a slant. Now watch it again. Did you see the ball turning this time? If I go the other way, it would stop and turn the opposite direction. Who is telling this ball which way to turn? The law of gravity. Something is happening to the ball that didn't happen before. It's trying to fall. And the ball is then going to start turning in such a way as to keep it from falling. This brings up a philosophical point. And that is a universal principle in nature that is called Le Chatelier's principle. A French philosopher who said that whenever you do something in nature, Nature will always react in such a way as to undo what you're trying to do to it. We see that in life all the time. You tell your son to do one thing, he does the other, right? You can explain almost anything that goes on in the world by that principle. We have all kinds of funny things like the Peter principle and all these other things that say if anything can go wrong, it will and stuff like that. That's a law of nature. This ball doesn't want to fall because it's part of nature. So it's going to start turning in a way that will make the pressure greater from underneath and keep it up there. And when you go over this way, it's going to start turning the other way so the pressure will be, again be greater from underneath because it's obeying Le Chatelier's principle. When you skate on the ice, the ice melts under your skates because it doesn't want to be pushed on by the ice skates. So the thing it can do to offset that pressure is to get smaller. And water is smaller than ice, so it melts. And you slide on the water. The Chatelier's printed. You can go on and on in every part of science. My point is, why is Le Chatelier's principle true? After all, it's only a statement of what we observe. The answer is, that if Le Chatelier's principle were not true, the universe would collapse. It would cease to exist. Everything would fall into a heap of rubble. And God doesn't want that. He created the universe to stay there. And so Le Chatelier's principle is God's way of keeping the universe going. Now somebody who doesn't believe in God will say, well, of course, it's just the universe's own way of keeping up. And that if the universe had not had this law, it would have collapsed. And the reason we're seeing it is because by chance, or by many trials and error, it happened to be this way. Well, you can't argue that. You can't argue against it. The person has his right to think that. And that's why reason can only take you so far, and you can say, I see that. If you don't, that's as far as we can go with reason. That's where faith takes over. And now we start using our Bibles. We start reading the Bible, Genesis 1, 1, and it says, in the beginning, God. It doesn't even argue about it. It doesn't say, now in case you don't believe in God, here's what you do. It assumes that you believe in God. Now, if a person doesn't, should he go on reading? 
Well, where else is he going to learn about God? He better keep on reading because he might just read something that will make him think. And then he can go back to Genesis 1.1. Ah, now I see it. So an unbeliever can't use the excuse, well, in the beginning, God, I don't believe in God, so it's not for me. Now, God made man and woman in his own image. That's what the first passage says, Genesis 1, 26 to 27. And that image included the fact that the created people that God made knew who he was. So Adam and Eve knew God. They didn't have to decide whether he existed or not. The knowledge of God was part of God's original creation. But that knowledge became blurred by sin. Among all the other things that happened, when sin entered the world, doubts about God <coughs> followed. In fact, maybe the doubt that God existed or that he was as smart as they knew before he was, this was part of the sin. That's what Satan told Eve. No, God didn't mean what you just said. Let me tell you what God really said. So the doubt was there that God really was God. And so the knowledge that God exists cannot be expected to be a natural part of every human being anymore. I think it varies. I think some people have a better natural knowledge of God than others because some really work at getting rid of it. Now, what does the Bible say about the people who do not believe that God exists? It's in there several times. Psalms 14, verse 1. Who has it? Yes, would you read that, please? The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do ab abominable deeds, and there is none that does good. Okay. So God calls the person who doesn't believe in his existence a fool. And in the second part of the verse, God equates the denial of his existence with corruption, with sin. It's part of the sinful nature of man to deny the existence of God. And the same thing is repeated almost word for word in Psalm 53, verse 1. Now let's turn to Romans 1, verse 20. That's Romans 1.20. Would you read it, please? <laughs> All right, so here God says that he expects his creation to see his existence in nature. And that therefore a person does not have an excuse for unbelief. Well, what if a person now, does someone else have any other passages? In our introductory discussion before, we didn't uh, have a chance to talk about Bible passages. I said you can use reason or you can use scriptures and faith. Are there any others that someone came up with that can be added to either one of these two points? where the Bible says that God expects us to know that he exists and that people who deny it have no excuse for it, but it's part of their sinfulness. In Romans? Right, would you read that? Okay, we should probably start that reference there on the paper then with verse 19 and 20. And even before then, it, it equates again the denial of God's existence with 
corruption and evil. Now, how does a person remove sin and evil from his thinking? That's point three. What can we tell a person who says, well, I just can't get to that knowledge and to that belief that there is a God, much less what he's like? And I've listed there Hebrews 11, verse 3. Remember that last time we had Hebrews 11, verse 1, which was a definition of faith. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Now it goes on in verse 3. Who has it open there? By faith we understand that the world was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was made out of things which do not appear. Thank you. So it tells us very clearly that the only way you can conclusively understand that God created the universe is by faith. But reason cannot do it all the way. And it even gets more mysterious yet. There are people who see in this passage a parallel with modern atomic theory, that things are made of substances, or that which is seen was made out of things which do not appear. What does that passage mean? Does it really say that visible objects, benches and the trees and everything are ultimately not there, but they're made of things that are not real. That's really kind of mind-boggling, isn't it? We're not real, we just think we are. And it really seems to be the case when you tear the atom apart that the final pieces may just be vibrations. It's really just another form of energy put together in a way that seems solid to other things and other matter put together in the same way. Others even go further and say there may be other forms of matter present right here that we can't detect because we're in the wrong wavelength. There may be somebody else sitting where you are. I've heard the miracles of Jesus explained in this way, that the reason he could walk through the wall is because he could change his wavelength. Now this is by a scientist, that he went into a different frequency so that the space in the atoms of that wall, and it's mostly space after all, if it would collapse into just solid matter, you couldn't see it, it'd be so small. It'd be a little black hole instead of a wall. And that Jesus could put himself in different frequencies and ride on through and then reappear on the other side in the frequency of the observers over there and that there was nothing unscientific about it at all. Now it may not be necessary to believe 11.3 means all that. That's stretching it pretty far. But at least it's helpful to bring that sort of thing up when people who think they know everything and who say the Bible is so unscientific and all, to stop them in their tracks for a moment and say, now let's talk about what matter really is. And then pretty soon the whole conversation gets pretty religious. Because I'm convinced we will never as we said last Sunday, we never get absolute truth. We will never understand on this side of eternity what matter is made of. We never will. So how can our knowledge of the universe contradict God? Since we don't even understand what we're talking about. <laughs> Same with eternity. How do you explain, how can that be <clears throat> in eternity that you never die and don't have to eat or anything else? Well, you read a little relativity and it turns out that the faster you travel, the slower time passes. That's been checked out with an airplane not more than a year or so ago. They took a plane with a clock and flew around the world one way 
and then it flew around the world in the other way and the clock did not keep the same time because it was going with the rotation and against the rotation just the way Einstein's formula has it. If you go fast enough, time stands still according to the theory. So what is eternity? Moving fast. <laughs> That's why we're not there yet. <laughs> That's the fountain of youth. You don't want to grow older? Move. Did I have the right time, Bob? 25 of 11, or did it stop? Yeah, it's all relative. Okay. <laughs> all relative, right. I've been moving too fast. Okay. Let's turn to 1 Corinthians 12, verse 3. <coughs> this takes us a step farther. The Christian is not only interested in knowing that God exists. This in itself can be a very terrifying thing. We want to know more. We want to know now what do we do. So we are interested in faith not only in God but in a Savior. And 1 Corinthians 12:3 says, there is no other way in which we can say that Jesus is our Savior, except that it be given to us by the Holy Spirit. So that also answers the question, how do you get faith? What if a person says, how can I believe what you're believing? Pray. Don't listen to arguments. Pray for the Holy Spirit. When you mentioned before about the person whose family was destroyed, this was an exact parallel, and I think it's later in this book where a scientist in Oslo said the very same thing you just mentioned. He was an atheist, and he said, you know, you Christians have an advantage over me. I cannot go home and pray that everything will be all right with my family and then sleep in peace. I have to worry about it myself. And then he used that very example. If I'd come home tonight, he said, and find that my wife and family had been murdered, I'd go insane because I would have no recourse to God or any other comfort. Now you say, why doesn't a person just tell him, believe, and it's all right? He said, I can't believe. What can you do for this person? All you can do is pray. Unless somebody else has another thing you would like to suggest. I couldn't think of anything else. There's no sense arguing any further. He knows who God is. He knows that those who believe in him have comfort and assurances that he doesn't have. But his own reason wouldn't let him believe. Yes, he was too important in his own eyes. And doesn't the Bible say that those who look for him will find him? Maybe that's what one should tell the person. I see what you mean. Uh, because if he really searched, he'd find it. Yes, I guess you're right. He was really turning off the search. Where did we look for that passage last night? Where is that one you quoted? We didn't look it up, but it's uh, the Lord draws near to those who believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. We have to find where that is. Is that where it is? 
Now the last point, until you find it, we'll go on to number four. We're running pretty close to the end here. And we heard this in our introductory discussion, that it is the life of the believer that is the most effective argument or proof of all. That you can talk all you want, what eventually will influence another human being is the way you live. Where a person, as you said, will say, I want to be like that too. It's really kind of selfish in a way, but it's the right kind of selfishness. Look how happy that person looks. How do I get that way? Now the two passages I have down here are Acts 4, verse 13. Who has that one? Could you read it, please? That's all right. I'm glad you read 14 because I think that should also be included. There were two things that impressed the people. First of all, that Peter obviously was a different person from what he was before. He had no particular training. He was not very brave when it came really down to brass tacks. He talked a big line, but he didn't really face up to it. But now he gets up in front of large, hostile crowds and speaks boldly. And secondly, they saw a person there who they knew was sick and now was well. Now talk about people who are intrigued by what happened to this person. They want that too. They want that power and assurance and to say nothing of this ability to heal a person. That influences people. And in James, Yes. But someone will say, you have faith, I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I by my works will show you my faith. All right. Thank you. <coughs> this says it very plainly that the way to effectively show that you have this faith, not only in the existence of God, but in the work of your Redeemer, is to do something about it. Now we could list more, and I want to leave a little time for other comments and questions, but there is a closing thing I want to mention in connection with the summary. What we've been talking about this morning is that reason makes people inherently feel that there is a God, there is something in them that makes them see that the universe must have a creator and so on. As Christians, we know that was put there by God, but it has been dulled. And the only perfect way to restore it is through Christian faith. And I have come to this conclusion that it really takes an effort to deny the existence of God. You've got to work at it, because by nature, your natural inclination, before you get all educated, is to see God in the universe. And a good example of that occurred not so many years ago when a theologian from Harvard was asked to address a conference on science to which Nobel Prize winners were also invited. And supposedly, the people who planned the conference thought that here was a good way to show how science and theology complement each other. Well, they picked the wrong guy. They picked a theologian from Harvard University who had lost his faith. And he presented on a paper on how the belief in immortality and eternal life and salvation is all outmoded. And it made the headlines. It says, and this was in the town where it was held, Harvard theologian loses his belief in immortality. Immortality of man, as preached by the Christian Church, is an arrogant concept that must cease, the dean of the Harvard Divinity School 
told the Gustavus Adolphus College Nobel Conference on Thursday. Now, that's only a newspaper article, and I thought they got it wrong. So when I had a chance to get to the next Nobel Conference, I asked, can I see the complete paper that this man, Stendhal, delivered? And it gets worse than this. What he's really trying to do is to substitute for simple Christian faith a very rationalistic framework for which you really don't need God or the Bible or inspiration or the Holy Spirit, but you can pretty well, as you mentioned, rest on your own reason and make it that way. What kind of a contribution to a conference on religion and science is that? <coughs> he really had to work at it. Or should we say maybe Satan worked in him? Because if you can get this man to feel like this, look how many other people he can lead astray. Because they will expect that he is a profound believer. There was more faith among the scientists there than in this presentation. Okay, we have a minute or two to someone, uh, and I'm going to add one or two points here from what we had today, because this keeps growing. The assignment for next time is to do the same thing we've done today on the existence of God, on the question of miracles. First of all, from the approach of reason, what is a miracle? And talk to us about miracles you have heard about or experienced. In addition to the chapter in The God of Science on what scientists say about miracles, the book that I find very helpful, it's not very long and profound, is the one just called Miracles by C.S. Lewis. Because if anybody combines reason and faith in a very intelligible way, it's C.S. Lewis. Yes, sir. Right. Well, um, that's very true, that belief in God by itself does not tell us very much. Whether that belief makes any difference to us, whether God is acting or whether he's just impersonal and set the universe in motion and now is letting it wind down, or whether God interferes with his own laws, and that really is the topic of miracles too, isn't it? Of whether he interferes and answers prayer and so on. You'll find further back in the book that I've separated out comments like that uh, and called them more or less personal testimonies, where the scientists went to greater lengths to tell what kind of God they believe in. And of course, you'll find the whole range. And I think probably among scientists, you will find more uh, individuality than among the, the average population, because that's the nature of their work, to challenge. And many of the scientists immediately pointed out that while they believe in God, they are not affiliated with any denomination or church because they wanted to do their own thing. And many of them said, well, I started out as a Methodist or a Lutheran and so on, but now I believe on my own. So there was a great range. Not always true, of course. There were many who were very active in their churches. Uh, but the whole range, I think, of belief in God and the type of God was present that you'll find anywhere. I have another paper here besides the one by Werner von Braun. If you want to read a real Christian confession by a scientist who is regarded around the world as one of the top chemists and chemistry professors, um, not only in this country, but abroad, it is Dr. Hubert Elliot at Princeton. And when I talk to him in his office there, and he talks like a machine gun, the same way he lectures, and when he puts on demonstrations, no matter at what convention, the place is jammed to the rafters. I saw him do, do a, a demonstration for a youth conference in Hofstra uh, Auditorium.